if you want a title for this message, it's a five-part series, and the first part I've called it Man Up, Having a Vision for Manhood. And I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive straight into this. Lord, thanks for the opportunity of being together with these brothers. Lord, as we commence this five-part series, Lord, would you help us to see what true masculinity is about, what true biblical manhood is about. Lord, Lord, would you challenge us? Would we be challenged as men by you as a man? And Lord, help us to be like you, Lord. Would you encourage our hearts? Would you equip our hearts? Would you affect our hearts? Lord, would we, would we be truly affected by your grace and for your glory? Amen. Amen. We're going to have the, the sound of scout girls in the background or whatever they call it over here. What are they called over here? Guides. Oh, we grow out of that when you're about six, but clearly, really. They carry on. Well, listen, tonight we're going to be starting our series on manhood. And, and really, I'm excited about it for two reasons. The first reason is because I think the Bible, without question, does speak a lot about masculinity. And the Bible spends a lot of time, believe it or not, talking to us about what biblical manhood is all about. And it's often just so missed and so brushed over. But in actual fact, it does talk a lot about masculinity. Your Bible that you have with you tonight is made up of over 66 books. It's written over a period of a few thousand years. And it's written by 40 different authors. And as far as we can tell, all of those authors were men. They were blokes written by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These men lived and built patriarchal societies where the father and the husband was the head of the home. And in which, in which case, these guys would lead their homes and care for their homes and love their homes and care accordingly for their wives and their children by protecting them, caring for them and leading them. The family name would then be traced historically through the father's line and not the mother's line. That was the whole point of the patriarchal system. In addition, in scripture, we're told at length to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Why? Well, because there are fathers in the faith. There are no mothers in the faith, okay? There are no aunties in the faith or sisters in the faith. The Bible always traces through, th- through things masculine-wise. It talks about the fathers of the faith, men that were see- seeking to admire because of who they believed in, the one that we ourselves are also to believe in. God himself, through scripture, is known as God the Father, not God the mother or not God the grandma. It, that's why I'm not a big fan of the TN, TNIV, because the TNIV is trying to make everything gender neutral. So it's not always God the Father, it's God the person or the being. Like, no, the Bible deliberately calls him a father, because there's something of masculinity going on in the Bible and through the Bible very deliberately for an important reason. Jesus rocks up not as the daughter of God, but the son of God. He's male, he's a bloke. Even a cursory reading of the Old Testament gives us an image of what masculinity is about. You see, there's one thing for sure. In the Old Testament, men were men. They were men's men. And if you, even a cursory reading of it is going to help you realise that and help you see it. These men were working, a lot of them, in agriculture. I grew up in a farming community in Spalding in Lincolnshire. And one thing you'd have to say about those guys is they work very, very hard. They're at work before the sun comes up. They're still finishing work as the sun comes down. In Lincolnshire, they would even try and work through the night. So they'd put big beams on their tractors and on their combine harvesters so they could just work all around the clock. These guys are incredibly hard-working, graft-orientated men, and that's what it's like in the Old Testament. Some of them were fishermen. The fishing industry is a very hard industry and a very manual industry, very masculine industry. There are men working hard as shepherds. 
We often hear about shepherd boys and think, oh, that's quite sweet and quite girly. But shepherd boys were often very rare. Shepherds were, the, were the, basically the people that had come out of prison and couldn't find any other job. They were hard, rough, difficult men. That's why when you look at the scene in Luke and the whole point of the angels coming and crashing in and scaring the shepherds, part of the reason why that is the case is because the shepherds, the contrast is these shepherds are rough men. They're men's men. And so for them to be so afraid and falling on their face was indeed a shock to that culture. There's also a lot of men in the Old Testament that go to war. I mean, I don't know what our generation would find or how we would get on now, but in these guys' time, many of the men, if not all of the men, would be preparing for and fighting in wars. They were men's men. And contrary to what so many people think about the way the Old Testament is structured, these men's men did a fantastic job of caring for and protecting and loving their women. Women were incredibly valued in the Old Testament, and you see it time and time again of how these men would care for these ladies. I mean, take one illustration, one example for you. In the Old Testament, a young girl is raped. The men around this brother go to him and they question him, and they ask him to repent for what he's done against their sister in the faith. He refuses. So these men who God called declared war on that nation and they killed 25,000 people. They wiped 25,000 men out as a consequence for the fact that you raped this girl. They were men's men and they valued femininity. These days you read about a woman being raped in the paper and you think, oh, that's, that's really sad. And you turn over the next page. Not the case in the Old Testament. Boom, we're taking recompense. We're going after these people. 25,000 killed in a day. That's massive is you realise how they used to care for their ladies. In the New Testament then, you see the arrival of Jesus Christ, a man coming to earth as God. He calls 12 male disciples. He then uses very masculine and military and offensive terminology regarding the church that he's going to build. We all have heard it before, the fact that even the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That's a very offensive masculine terminology. And the point is Jesus Christ is building something so that even as Satan seeks to shut the gates on all the people within, the very gates of hell can't prevail against it because Jesus Christ himself, along with his church, men who are called by God to go after these people, are going to go after them. And when they do go after them in an aggressive way, even the gates of hell can't prevail against them. That's masculine. And that's our leader. That's Jesus, the one who is building his church for the glory of God. In the same language then, Paul uses it very similarly in Ephesians 6. As we talk about the armour of God, he talks about an army clothing themselves for battle. Battle against their sin and battle against the evil one that certainly lives in the world. And in Revelation, this whole army scene cultivates with who else? But Jesus in Revelation 19, coming to earth as the great warrior, the one who is called faithful and true, And he comes with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords tattooed on his leg, printed on his robe, sword in his mouth, and he starts charging into the world on a horse. Why? To kill his enemies. To bring them to a close. That is masculine. And so, so much of what we think of the Bible and about Christianity is so girly and feminine. But when you stop and consider the storyline of the Bible, you consider what the Bible portrays as masculine, you realise it's all over the Bible. It's everywhere, and it's manning up time when you start to realise all that the Bible says about what true masculinity is. And so I'm excited about doing man up, in part 
Because the Bible talks so much about masculinity. It talks so much about manning up. It talks about what it is to live for the glory of God as men. And the second reason why I'm so eager and so excited about this course is because I'm eager that as a group of men, we run well and finish strong together. We're in this together. The Bible portrays church as a family, which is good. Betrays it as a bride, which is good. But most masculine men get a bit worried about that because they think, I don't think I want to be a bride. I think, you know, this sucks. Well, it also betrays it as an army, a group of brothers that are linked arm in arm for the glory of God. They're going to go to war together. They're going to do battle together. They're going to seek to win souls together. There's something very masculine about what the Bible paints about. And it's very important then that we realize we're in this together. There's three books that I want to recommend to you as we go through this course that will help you. First of all, what's the difference? If you've never read this, buy it, get it. What's the difference? Manhood and Womanhood Defined According to the Bible by John Piper. This is a fantastic book. It just talks about what really is manhood and what really is womanhood according to the Bible. And it gives you a criteria, whether you be single or whether you be married or whether you're a granddad, whatever you be, this book really, really helps to clarify then what are our roles and what is the Bible painting a picture of in terms of true biblical masculinity and true femininity. Another book I want to encourage you about is this one, Point Man, How a Man Can Lead His Family by Steve Farah. If you've never read that, this is a must read. I read this when I was 18, so I wasn't married and certainly didn't have any kids, but it's still a fantastic book. You know, it doesn't matter how old you are, this is dynamite stuff. Because it really helps you see, what is my calling as a man? How do I portray biblical masculinity in my life in terms of what am I about? And then should I be married? How do I then lead my wife and how do I serve my children and so on and so forth? Fantastic book. I've ordered about 30 of these or something, so just buy every last one. It's absolutely fantastic. And another book is Finishing Strong. It's the second part to Point Man, Finishing Strong by Steve Farrer. Subtitle, Going the Distance for Your Family. This is fantastic. This is gold stuff. Finishing strong. And and on the premise that we're looking at tonight, what I just explained there, that I'm eager that we run well and finish strong together, I just want to read you a portion of this. I read this one, well, not quite long ago as Point Man, but certainly many years ago. And this opening illustration grabbed my attention immediately. And it's even been more grabbing probably since as the years have gone on as you realise this is true. It says this, In the Christian life, it's not how you start that matters, it's how you finish. John Bisagno has been pastoring First Baptist of Houston for a number of years. When John was just about to finish college, he was having dinner over at his fiancé's house one night. After supper, he was talking with his future father-in-law, Dr. Paul Beck, out on the porch. Dr. Beck had been in ministry for years and that was inevitably the subject towards which the conversation turned. John, as you get ready to enter the ministry, I want to give you some advice, Dr. Beck told the younger man. Stay true to Jesus. Make sure that you keep your heart close to Jesus every day. It's a long way from here to where you're going to go and Satan's in no hurry to get you. The older man continued. It has been my observation that just one out of ten who start out in full-time service for the Lord at 21 are still on track by the age of 65. They're shot down morally, 
They shot down with discouragement. They shot down with liberal theology. They got obsessed with making money. But for one reason or another, nine out of ten fall out. The 20-year-old Bisagno was shocked. I just can't believe that, he said. That's impossible. That just can't be true. Bisagno told her he went home, took one of those blank pages in the back of his Schofield reference Bible and wrote down the names of 24 young men who were his peers and contemporaries on his course. These were young men in their 20s who were sold out for Jesus Christ. They were trained for ministry and burning in their desire to be used by the Lord. These were the committed young preachers who would make an impact for the Lord in their generation. Bisagno relates the following with a sigh. I am now 53 years old. From time to time as the years have gone by, I've had to turn back to the pages in my Bible and cross out a name. I wrote down those 24 names when I was just 20 years of age. 33 years later, there are only three names remaining of the original 24. In the Christian life, it's not how you start the matters. It's how you finish. Those guys were going to be preachers. They were the Bible college students, men that had been put apart for works of ministry and serving the Lord. And over their entire generation, the statistics were one in ten. One in ten are going to make it. I don't want that to be the case in Sovereign Grace Church. I don't want to be looking at a group of guys when we started and then in 30 years' time, when I'm old and grey, be looking back and think, what happened to that guy? Yeah, affair. Yeah, he lost the plot. He got so impressed with work and so amazed by work, we just never saw him again. Now I think he's divorced. I don't want to have to go back to my Bible and be crossing things out. And I think the privilege of being men together is that we're able to link arms together and actually do life together in an honest way, in a masculine way, in a way that is going to get on it and spur one another on towards godliness. I want us to run the race well. And as John Bisagno says, it's not how you start. It's how you finish. How are you going to finish? Maybe some of you guys are in your teens. Maybe some of you are in your 60s. And there's loads of us in between. It's not to do with how you started. It's to do with how you're finishing. How are we able to keep the pace up, no matter what years of our lives we're in, to ensure that we're going to make it, to ensure that we're going to run the race well, to ensure that we're going to actually out-sprint the last generation, to ensure that we are truly brandishing the gospel and not messing about with the gospel and not getting distracted by worldliness, but instead are actually doing some damage for Jesus, like we're called to do as men. The Bible screams of masculinity and I want us to explore that and examine it. I mean, in the, in the context of the Bible screaming that masculinity, I want us to do life together and run together to ensure that we finish strong together. And so, if you want an outline for this course, it's not complicated. I haven't written each of the weeks yet, but this is what's in my head. We really want to, over the next five sessions, we want to get a vision for biblical manhood really look at what is that as biblically defined. How does the Bible in particular talk about the role of men? I want us to then examine three common diversions, things that will pick us off, things that if we do have to return to names and cross them out, we will probably find one of these things in the top of it. So I want us to look at lust, the whole premise of being a one-woman kind of guy, and guarding our eyes and making a covenant with our eyes. I want us to look at pride, how that functions and how that operates in our lives. I also want us to look at unbelief because so many men that I know 
historically haven't just fallen because of lust and pride, but sometimes they've fallen because they've been so scared. They haven't wanted to make a decision. They haven't wanted to question their wife about that. They haven't wanted to say that to their child or whatever it be because they're just nervous. The fear of man is so operating in their lives, which just means that they lack courage. And then in the final session, week five, I want us to look at manhood and marriage, having taken on what we've examined. How does that operate then in the context of our home and in the context of of marriage? So today we're going to be starting off with the first session, which is just simply getting a vision for manhood. And if you'd turn with me to Psalm 15, please. That's where we're going to be spending our time this evening. We're going to let King David outline for us, really, a map for us, just some of the qualities of what biblical manhood really is. So let me read Psalm 15 together. He says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent, He who does these things shall never be moved. In verse 1, the question comes. David is asking the question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? You know, the focus of David's attention here is simply this. What is the character of the one God approves of? What is the character of the one that God wants to draw near? What is the character of the individual which God looks on with that approving smile. What are they like? How do they model things in their life? And for us as men, there is great application for us from Psalm 15, because in many ways for us, as we examine this through manhood eyes, we're able to ask the question of what is God looking for in a man? As God looks around this room, what is he calling us to? What is he looking for in our lives as brothers, as men? as men called by God to live for God. Now, make no mistake, this psalm isn't all-inclusive. Okay, We're not examining five verses to then discover, okay, we've got it completely licked. If you just do these five verses and apply it, there's nothing else that, that even remotely would relate to us with regard to manhood. That's not the case. And there are several places in Scripture where we have these types of lists. So there's another one in Psalm 24. There's another one in Isaiah 33. But in each case, what they are is lists that represent as a whole what is it that God wants to see in us as men? What is it, in a nutshell, as representative character qualities that God wants us to examine as men, the men that we're called to be by his grace and for his glory? So there's five things we're going to look at tonight that I want us to be challenged by and provoked by five things that I simply think what, this is what God is looking for in a man. This is what we're called to, brothers. If you're married, this is what your wife should be expecting of you for the glory of God. If you're a father, this is what your children should be expecting of you for the glory of God. 
If you want to get married, this is what you've got to become. These are the ways you're going to be able to lead your wife and lead your children. If you're going to play a part in a local church and serve effectively in masculinity, then these are the things. These are the criteria that God is looking on and saying, that's what I want. That's how I want it to operate. That's how I want biblical masculinity to work in your life. So number one is the first thing. It's the first thing that God is looking for in a man. Number one, a man of truth. Verse 2 simply says, He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. One of the things that God is looking for in a man, one of the qualities that should define us as masculine men is that there should be an ability in the grace of God to walk blamelessly and do what is right. See, God is not He is not passionate about men who, according to James 1, look at themselves in the mirror, realize on a Sunday morning, having rocked up to church, that you know what, my pastor's told me a load of things today that I really need to change in, but I still think I look pretty nice, so I'm not going to change anything. God's not into that. He's not into men that will examine themselves in light of truth, realize they probably need to change, and then do nothing with it at all. That is, that is completely out of order and not masculine in any way. God wants us to examine ourselves in light of Scripture and then go away and walk it out, to walk it out blamelessly and walk it out and do what is right. He wants us to apply Scripture. That's why James 1 is so effective because it talks to us about the man that looks in the mirror and does nothing. God is saying, I don't want that for you. That shouldn't be you. That's not the way you should operate as Christians. In James 2... He nails it even some further as he talks to us about how God in grace wants us to apply the faith that we've got, apply what we're seeing in our lives and in our walks. In verse 14 of chapter 2, James 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace. Be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The harsh and important realities of Scripture is despite what comes out of our mouth when we're playing games and we're being nice, what God is actually looking for is what is your lives saying? What are your lives actually saying? Because our, our words can just be cheap. And I know for me in my life, at different points and different seasons of my life, my words can be cheap. I can say the right things and do the right things. But God's not interested in that. God's interested in what is your life saying? What is your life screaming of? You say you have the faith. So let's work it out in your works. Let's work it out in your lifestyle and in the way you're walking. And that's exactly what David is saying here. He's saying, listen, the one that God looks at is one that walks blamelessly and does what is right. You know, the way he does that then, how does he do it? He says it and speaks truth in his heart. See, this man that is so clearly a man of truth is so clearly then a man of the word. He speaks truth in his heart. That is impossible to do unless you know the truth. You can't just make it up out of your head. If you're going to speak truth in your heart, then you have to know the truth. You have to be able to meditate on it and know it and understand it and grasp it. The truth really is the fuel 
to be able to do the walk of blamelessness and right work. And I love Psalm 119 because that really meshes the two. In fact, why don't we just turn there? Keep your finger in Psalm 15, but whack over to Psalm 119 in a moment. We're not going to read it all. <laughs> As we could be or what. But let's read the first 16 verses, because in these first 16 verses, if we pay careful attention, both of these things are meshed. Both this right walk before the Lord, but also this fuel, which is God's word. It says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? That's the question. It gives us the answer by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Isn't that great? What a helpful psalm for us. How does a man walk blamelessly before the Lord and do what is right? How do we do it? He tells us, verses 6 and then 15, by fixing our eyes on the word. Verse 10, by seeking after the Lord in his word with our whole hearts. Verse 11, by storing up God's word in our hearts. And by 15 and 16, by meditating on it and making it our delight. Listen, if we are going to be the men that God has called us to be, i.e. men of truth, men that are able to walk, walk in a blameless light to life, to walk in a way that brings Him glory by walking in truth, then we have to be men of the Word. We have to get it in. Garbage out, garbage in. Good out, good in. There's got to be stuff going into our lives. And that is this word. There is no plan B. If you don't like reading, you're going to have to man up because God's word is word. Get over it. That's how he did it. He didn't decide to do it as a movie. He didn't decide to do it as a tape recording. He decided to write it down. He was going to write it down. And when we become a Christian, we're given the mind of Christ, which should seriously help us. We've just got to discipline ourselves. We've got to be men of this word. Because God wants us to walk blameless lives. He wants us to walk in the truth. That is not possible unless the truth is actually in our lives. It's going to take time. It's going to require cost. It's going to require inconvenience. Because we have to reschedule things to ensure that we be men who are gathering around this word. And the sad truth is, as I've thought about it this week, the sad truth is, I think for many people, for men and women, but particularly men, 
they just don't spend anywhere near enough time in the Word to be able to walk out what Psalm 15 is talking about. The truth just isn't in the heart enough to make it function in the way they walk. Mark sent me a, a video this week, which I, he had told me about before, and I said, oh, send me it over. And The whole point of the video is it just talks about how an average guy uses his time. And it was just so provoking, and I played this little thing. If I'd known how to play it through that, I, I would have done, but that gene seems to have gone missing for me. I have no idea how to make those things work. But it was a clever little video just explaining about average uses of time, and I, I, I made some notes on it. It says that the average guy in, in America, the average guy lives 77 years, which is 28,000 days, which is 670,000 hours. So if you want to know how long you've probably got, wow. 670,000 hours from the time you're born, and then it's ticking down from there on in. Now, 40 minutes of a day, according to this, is spent on the telephone, whether that be on the iPhone, doing your gadgets, or whether it be actually calling people up. 40 minutes a day is spent on the telephone. That's about 20 hours per month, 10 days per year, two years of your whole life spent on your iPhone. One hour a day is spent on the bathroom. If you might partial itch, it might be slightly more than that, but... <laughs> For most of us, it's about one hour a day in the bathroom. You, you know you spend on that. That's 30 hours per month. That's 15 days a year. Three years of your life are spent in the bathroom. That's why it's worth investing some time into a decent bathroom. Because you spend three years in there, you know what I'm saying? 26 minutes a day. It's not good for you, bro. 26 minutes a day are spent dressing. That's 13 hours a month. Seven days a year, one whole year of your life are spent putting your pants on. <laughs> three hours a day, three hours a day on average, people in America are spending on the TV and internet. Three hours a day. That's 90 hours a month, 45 days a year, nine years of their life in front of a TV or in front of a computer screen. And then it talks about the average Christian. They'd done a research and polls around the different churches. And what they found is the average Christian spends less than 10 minutes a day in God's Word. Less than six hours a month. Less than three days a year. Only seven months of their life. So for the average guy, he spends less time approaching God, the creator of the universe, the one who died in his place, the one who is shouting to him day and night about how to live a life that brings glory to him, how to, he will sustain him, how he will give him grace. The average guy spends longer on the toilet than he does reading God's word. That's an incredible statistic. Three hours a day watching television or on the internet, less than 10 minutes a day with the maker of the universe. It's a challenging thing, isn't it? And it's a provoking thing as you consider your own lives and how much time you spend doing things and then so often how much little time we're willing to spend with the Lord. And the fruit of spending so little time I think is, is twofold. I think sometimes I spend time with guys who just feel dry and ineffective and they just say, I'm so, I just feel so dry. I just feel God's so far away from me. Well, how much time are you spending in the Word? And often the answer is, well, I'm not. Well, that won't be helping, fellas. You know, we are never going to be the men that God's called us to be. We're never going to be able to walk in a, in a manner that is worthy of the calling that he's given us. We're never going to be able to be true masculine men in the way that he's called us to be and the way the scriptures scream of 
If we can't even be bothered to spend 10 minutes a day in his word, that's pathetic. This is appalling stuff. And I've been there and I've done it. But it's time to man up. This is God's word. If you're married, brothers that are married here, the Bible says that thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Let's not start asking everybody else what we should do. Let's start getting into the word and finding out from God. Lord, what do I do? How do I live my life? Help, help me. It's all in here. Scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for everything. It's equipped for all of the things that we need. These are the answers for us in our lives. And if we're going to lead our homes, if we're going to lead our wives, if we're going to lead our children, if we're going to prepare to be the men that God's called us to be, if we're going to lead spheres in the local church, then this is number one. We don't move off this. This is everything. This is God's word. And so when we're feeling dry and ineffective, more often than not, it's because we're not spending time with the Lord. It's just not happening. Another fruit that I've seen sometimes of, of guys that are only spending 10 minutes a day with the Lord or, or maybe less, and this one is just awfully grieving. It's effectively you see guys and they're spiritually anorexic. I mean, I, I had a sister-in-law, I still have a sister-in-law, that, it, that was anorexic. and She was properly anorexic. So when Emma was, first became a Christian, um, she was ministering to her sister and they said, if you can't get her to eat, she will die. She was in a shocking state. Now she's not got anorexia at all. She's good to go. But she had it, and she had it for a long time. And the challenge with anorexia, because it's such a mental issue, is you have got somebody who is absolutely tiny in skin and bone, but when they look in the mirror, they see themselves as fat. They see themselves as huge. You know, I, I meet guys like that that are spiritually anorexic when it comes to God's word. They're not spending any time feeding themselves. But they look in the mirror and they're saying, gosh, I'm fat, I'm good to go, I feel fine. Mate, you're skinny. This is tiny. You don't know God's word. You have no idea how to put one foot in front of the other. You have no idea how to walk rightly and blamelessly because you're not in this word. You're spiritually anorexic. You know, whether you be dry or spiritually anorexic, the key to both is you're ineffective. Effectively because of our own sin and because of Satan, we're neutralized. We're not going to be doing any damage for Jesus when we're not guided by his word. We're just going to be hanging out, playing PlayStation and hurting our fingers because that's what we're going to do instead. But we've got to man up. We get one shot at this. If you're lucky, you're going to live till you're 80. If you're lucky. You get one shot and then you're dead. And we stand in all eternity and we stand before the creator of heaven and earth. What's he going to say? You were wicked on the way. We've got to be men of the word. We've got to gather around this word as brothers and help one another and spur one another on to get into this word because this is our guide and this is how we'll be able to lead our homes through this word. So let me ask you this. What are your personal devotions looking like right now? Are your personal devotions reflective of Psalm 119? Would you be able to look another brother in the eye and say, to be honest, right now I am fixing my eyes on the word. I'm seeking after the Lord in his word with my whole heart. I'm storing up God's word in my heart. I'm meditating on it and making it my delight. Or is your response like my response? There's room for growth. I've got to man up. I've got to step out more being increasingly a man of God's word and letting this guide me. See, maybe your ongoing excuse 
And I've used every excuse under the sun. I could have listed about 10 excuses, but I've only done two. Maybe your ongoing excuse is, look, I just find it so hard because I'm so busy. Well, man up. Stop it. Everybody has time for things that are important for us. We always make time for things that are important to us. That's the way we live our lives. And if you are so busy that you're saying, look, I leave the house at four o'clock in the morning and I get back in at midnight, such as the challenges of my job, here's my pastoral recommendation. Leave your job. That's rubbish. There is no point in doing that whatsoever because you know, we, we work for a living, not live for work. You know, there's no point in living that way. Busyness is such a, such a lie and can be such a waste. If we really are too busy to read God's word, then we're too busy for our lives. We've got to make radical changes in our lives to make sure this is a priority for us. Otherwise, we have got it massively the wrong way around. And it is a complete lie. It's a complete lie of the enemy. But the effect of that is that you are neutralized. You're not going to be be linking with Jesus and prevailing against the gates of hell. You're going to be busy doing stuff. It's a lie. It's a distraction of the world. Another lie is that maybe you find it hard to get up in the mornings. Maybe you find it very difficult. Maybe, maybe you're a night person and you just find the mornings very difficult. Well, the best thing to do with that is get over it and man up. That's just so girly. And I understand it because I hate mornings with a passion. I really hate mornings with a passion. I mean, there's everything in my body just says, you need a rest. I, I am just a, a concophony of lies when my alarm clock goes off in the morning. I just, everything under the sun is saying, you need a rest. You are working so hard for Jesus. You just need to rest right now and take some time out. Guys, part of being a man is understanding that when that alarm clock goes off, that for us as men is a call to war. That alarm clock is a call to war for the day. Okay, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm going to fight this flesh right here, right now, and we're going to get on with it for the day. I'm going to start my day the way I mean to go on. If we can't do that, there's something wrong. It means that our flesh is winning the race. We can't allow the flesh to win win the race. We've got to man up and take it. Proverbs 26, verse 14, which I remember meditating on for many weeks when I was working this through my own life, It says, as the door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to the mouth. It's a wonderful scene, isn't it? The sluggard turning on the bed and he puts his hand out into the bowl. And the food's in the bowl, but he he doesn't want to wear himself out taking it to his mouth. He just leaves it in the bowl because he's resting. And he needs a nap. I mean, what are naps all about? I mean, that's just like a joke. I just need a nap. I'm very tired. It's a sluggard. It's laziness. You know, we don't see Bear grills on man versus wild. Saying, well, I'm on a precipice. I'm just going to give it a bit more. And Oh, there's some food that I really need. I'll, I'll put my hand in it. That's rubbish. Part of manning up is, you know what? We've got to get over that. And so if we're a sluggard turning on our hinges, the best bet is getting off the hinge, getting out of bed. Don't do what I used to do. Here's what I used to do. I used to, the alarm clock used to go off in the morning, and because I enjoy praying and spending time in God's Word, my alarm clock would go off, and my, my sinful nature clocked on that if it could convince me that there's something spiritual going to go on, it might be able to win. So what used to happen is the alarm clock would go off, and I used to get out of bed and seek to read my Bible very quickly. But I got into a habit of... The alarm clock went off, the call to war, and then my flesh would say, you should pray first. And you can do that horizontally right where you are. 
<laughs> so I would. And then sometimes I think, man, I've prayed for like an hour and a half. It's unbelievable. And then as I recall, I don't remember anything I've prayed for, which meant I was asleep. You know, I just basically completely gone back to sleep again. That is not going to work. We've got to get on it. The alarm clock goes off. We're men at war. And that's why in 1 Timothy 4 verse 7, Paul says to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Nick, you used to be a proper rower. Tell me, tell, give us one minute on your training. One minute. T- t- well, give us a, an insight of when you were just about to, because you used to row for Australia. Yes. So one minute on, give me a one week up until that point, what was that training like? Yeah, mornings, evenings, what did you do? All right, good. So you were a proper athlete. Yeah, well, you're still an athlete in my eyes. You're big enough to take me, so you're an athlete. Most people are big enough to take me. But here's the thing that, well, not Willsey. Here's the thing. The point was, he was training. So how many hours did you say there? Okay, so 20 to 60 hours a week of training. When was the last time you crocked open your Bible and thought, I'm going to give it 20 to 60 hours this week for the kingdom of God? That's the vision of what Paul's given us in 1 Timothy. He's saying, I don't want to this girly five minutes a day stuff. What the heck is that about? He's saying, train yourself for the purpose of Godliness. Get on this. And his whole premise is of a gymnasium, an athlete that is getting on it because he wants to lead his home, he wants to lead his family, he wants to lead his wife, he wants to play a part in the local church, he wants to be stable, he wants to be able to walk blamelessly, he wants to be able to walk carefully in front of the Lord. And he's saying, listen, 1 Timothy 4 verse 8, physical training is of some use. But don't worry about that when compared to spiritual training. That's where it's at. That's where it's at for you as believers. We need to bring that mindset, which Nick has just painted there, about proper training, I think, into our walk with the Lord. That's what it means to man up. It isn't seeing what little we can get away with. It's being aware, if I am training for something, how much time do I want to give it? And I submit to you, it should probably be reasonably lengthy. We want to be athletes for Jesus. That's what we want to be. Men of truth, that as people hear about our walk with the Lord, they say, you know what, you are an athlete. You give time to that. You give hours to that. This is a firm commitment of your life. How you do that is up to you. But make no mistake, we need to be men of truth. Because that's what God wants. That's what we're called to be, as masculine men. Number two, that's the longest one, by the way. Number two, a man of restraint. says this in verse 3, he says, Who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Here the psalmist references things that the man of God will not do. Okay, he's going to get on to things that the man of God will do. But right now he's talking about restraint, the things that the man of God will not do. He will not slander. So I, in his speech, he is self-controlled. He knows when to zip it. 
He knows when to say nothing for the glory of God. He will not slander, and he will do no evil to his neighbor, nor take up reproach against his friend, i.e. actions. Here is a guy that is in control, full control, and a restraining way of his speech and of his actions. See, what we learn then through this text is that quite simply this, God is looking for men of restraint. He's looking for men that say, okay, this far and no further. It's like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. And he stands there and he says, right, you shall not pass. And there's just something masculine and committed about this guy that's saying, enough, no more. God's saying, you need to be like that. That's what a man of restraint is. Somebody who is saying, as for me and my house, there are principles, there are things that I stand on, and I'm not moving from this. A man of restraint. Well, what do we have to be restrained in? Well, he talks about it. Number one, gossip and slander should not in any way be a part of us. And men, we need to grasp this and have this built into our lives very clearly and very strongly. Gossip and slander... There should be no part of it in our lives. There should be no part of that in Sovereign Grace Church. It, it divides. By very nature, it is, it is something, as we'll see in a moment, that God hates. He doesn't say that he hates everything, but he certainly says he hates that. Gossip and slander should not have any part of us. And by very nature, gossip is not only sin, it is slightly girly. Whenever you've got people addressing it in the New Testament, they're addressing it in the context of be careful with women that they don't gossip. So gossip is one of those slight sins that like, is a temptation for women. So when men do it, you think, this is really appalling. This is not only sinful before the Lord, but this is just, we haven't even been made this way to be talking a certain way about one another. It's, it's rubbish. We should have no part of what we're playing. Gossip, basically, is having conversation about others of a negative nature. Conversation about others of a negative nature. And David is saying, you know what? There shouldn't be any part of that. There should be no part of that in your midst, in any shape or form. James Montgomery Boyce says, A person who loves Jesus does not slander others. He who does not gossip. Isn't this the chief sin in the church of Jesus Christ today? Aren't too many bold in gossiping about and harming others with their tongues? I'm not speaking here about the unsaved, though they are certainly gossips too, but about Christians I think more damage has been done to the church and its work through gossip, criticism and slander than by any other single sin. So here I say it, don't do it. Folks, don't do it. Do not do it. Here's how you can discern whether you're gossiping or not. If you are chatting in a negative nature to an individual, if they're not the individual in question i.e. you're addressing them in love by the grace of God because you want to correct them and help them, or they're not part of the answer, i.e. I just need counsel as to how to help best help that person, then it's gossip. Why are you telling them? Why are you passing that information on? That must stop. That must not have any part in our midst. I'm a big fan of St. Augustine. I like the homies. That most of the people that I really respect are dead. And St. Augustine was just a great guy. He was a man of God's word. He was a man of clarity. And he had something that I discovered some time ago. He had a motto up above his dining room table. It said this, He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. That's manliness. 
He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. I like that. And I think there is something masculine and clear about, you know what? No. Enough. I'm not part of the problem. I'm not part of the answer. Enough. And we shouldn't be talking that way either. This is a man of restraint. He knows how to use his words and he knows where to stop. He knows where to say, this is not right. This is gossip. This is slander. I'm leaving you with an impression about somebody that you can do nothing with because you're not part of the problem and you're not part of the answer. That's gossip. And it should have no place. David is keen to express that to us in terms of speech because a man of restraint is restrained in his speech but he's also restrained in his actions. You see, for all of us, there should be things in our lives that quite honestly we're saying, look, I'm not willing to do this. There should be things that we're saying, no, I, I can't. There is, a, there is something in my heart that says, I, I simply won't do it. God wants us to be men of conviction and principle, and he wants us to therefore be restrained in our actions. And we should be. There should be things that as you touch you, whether it be at work or in home or in life, that people realize he's not going to do it. Good. Because that's manly. There is something of restraint in biblical manhood. I remember one of the best pieces of advice I got off C.J. Mahoney um, at Pastors College, and we were just saying, look, what do you do as a young pastor? Because Ike was coming out of Pastors College at 23, um, so I was, I was really young. And you just think, what do you do? You know, Christchurch had people in their, in their 80s, so you think, all right, well, I'm 24, and they're 80, and uh, how, do we, how do we start working this out? And how do you kind of operate as a as a young pastor in this context. And he said, well, here's what you do. Here's what you make sure you do. You never do. Never be bought, never be manipulated, and never be intimidated. That is counsel that's taught me so well. Don't be intimidated by people. Don't be manipulated by people. And don't be bought by people. His whole premise was like Paul to Timothy. Don't let people despise you for your youth, young man. Don't be intimidated by them. If you're in good heart trying to serve them, don't be intimidated. Don't be manipulated. Let them try to gang up on you. Don't be manipulated if you think this is right and this is true. Don't be bought just because somebody's going to give you their car or something. Don't let them have a role in church. His whole premise was don't don't do this. Be a man of conviction. Be a man of restraint. Be a man that is not going to be moved by others. And so here's the question. What are your will-nots? What are the things that you just will not do? If I was to interview your family or your friends, and I said, you know what, what are things that he would not do? What would they say? Would they be able to articulate specifics that he wouldn't do that? And if I said, well, would he do this? Oh, no, I know he wouldn't do that. Or would would they say, I don't know, maybe. There should be clarity on our will-nots. And if our friends and family can't articulate our will-nots, then maybe we need to work on that. Maybe we need to get clear on what are our restraints. What are the things that we're willing to say this far but no further? I'm not going there. I'm not doing this. I'm not behaving in this way. That is unacceptable for me in this home. What are our restraints? God wants a man of restraint. Number three, a man of passion. Verse 4, part A. 
says it this way, in whose, eyes are vi- in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. You know, one of the things that I love about God is that we serve a passionate God. God isn't dull. He isn't just on this sort of monotone way of living. He is a passionate, loud, enthusiastic God. And if you want to know whether that's really true, well, check Jesus out. Because he was a passionate, loud, and enthusiastic God. And that's where you get the scene in the temple, where for zeal for his father's house consumed him, and he's pulling over tables and driving them out with whips. That's pretty full on. That's not nicey-pantsy stuff from Jesus Christ. That is full on. Because zeal for his house consumed him. He was passionate. He believed in something. God is passionate. We have a passionate and serve a passionate God. And God's desire is that we would be passionate about what he's passionate about. That's what the verse is about. That we would be passionate about what he is passionate about. That we would love what he loves. That we would hate what he hates. See, the Bible makes it clear then what he hates and what he loves. In Proverbs 6... It talks about what he hates. In verse 16, it says, There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, namely pride, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. That's pretty full on. So a man that sows discord among the brothers, God hates that. He hates it. A man that lies, he hates that. A man that is proud and looks on with haughty eyes at others, i.e. I'm a bit better than you, God hates that. He stands in opposition to that. Do you see that? God hates those things. And because we are made in God's image and we're made to imitate God, we're not meant to turn a blind eye to those things and say, oh, well, no dramas. You know, we're all different. It's the age of toleration. No, it's not. Jesus Christ was not the age of toleration. He was a dividing line. He was saying, this is unacceptable. Have it in the temple. Boom. He's passionate. He is passionate about hating certain things. And he's passionate about loving certain things. So the gospel, the church, his people, his bride, a cheerful giver, servant-heartedness, worship, Praise, kindness, patience, tenderheartedness. God loves these things. That's what we learn in the Bible. And what we learn from this verse is that in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, he wants us to be passionate about what God is passionate about. Hating what he hates. Loving what he loves. A man of passion. And so the simple question is this. What are you passionate about? What is it? What are the things that you get riled about? What are the things that get you excited? If you're sitting there and you think, actually, I have no idea. I'm not really a passionate type of guy. Yeah, yeah. We're all passionate. We're made in God's image. we just got to work out what you're passionate about. Well, how do I do that? Well, here's a few clues. Where does most of your time go? When you're talking? What do you like talking about the most? What do you get animated about? What are the things that affect you more than normal? Where does your money go? You want to find out what you're passionate about? Pull your checkbook out. Take a note. You'll find out. Because where our heart is, there goes our money. And our heart is 
dictated by passions. Our energies, where are they spent? Where does our time go? And as we discover that, if we discover that we are passionate about something other than what God is passionate about, then by grace we need to make some changes. We need to make some adjustments to our lives. Because we're made in the image of God and we're made to reflect Jesus Christ to the world. Jesus Christ is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, but his body is sitting here in this room. We're it. We're called to reflect Jesus now in our communities. Loving what he loves, hating what he hates and model that. You know, it's so easy to get sucked in by the lies of the enemy, isn't it? So easy to get sucked in by the lie that this world is your home. I think that's one of the enemy's biggest lies. And you just think, I can't think about dying right now or heaven. This is looking pretty good. I'm thinking about my next holiday and saving up for the house and getting my new car. That's one of the greatest lies of the enemy. To help us and suck us into this feeling that this is it. This is where your life stops. And it's only when we come out of it and realize this is not my home. I was made for a person and a place. That person is Jesus Christ and that place is heaven. I'm an alien here. I'm a stranger here. I was bought with a price. And so let's get on it for Jesus Christ while I'm here because I've got 80 years and then I'm gone. We don't live there though. We live sucked into a lie that this world is it. Take all you can. Do all you can. It's a lie. We also get sucked into the lie that we've got all the time in the world. And so we hear messages like this and we think, crikey, that was a bit full on. I'll have to get a bit to that, you know, when I'm older. I'll uh, try and work it out. Maybe you won't get older. Maybe by Christmas you're gone. Maybe this is your last few months. What type of man are you going to be? What are you going to hear when you stand before the maker of heaven and earth? Well done, good and faithful servant. Or are you going to say, I thought I had more time. That's what the psalmist talks about. The man is like grass. It grows, the sun comes up, the wind blows and it's gone. Is that it? Yeah, that's it. We've got one chance and then we're gone. We must be passionate about what God is passionate about. That's where we need to expend ourselves. It will cost us. It will take time. It will take money. It will take effort. It will take your... You know what it'll take? It'll take everything. It'll take your life. Christianity is not for the faint-hearted. It's not just some sort of add-on of, oh, I'll give it a go when I'm really bored. It's not for comfortable girly boys. It's for full-on people that love Jesus, that are passionate about Jesus, and in a masculine way are going to say, I'm going to get on it for Jesus Christ. That's what I want to do in my life. That's what it's about. And then we're dead, and it's gone. We expend our lives. If your life makes sense in light of this world, then it does not make sense in light of eternity. It makes no sense at all. Our lives should be radically different from the world. And that is exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly the example of God. And that should be our example too. God loves a man of passion. A man of clear passion. Number four, a man of resolution. It's the second half of verse four. He says, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. I love that who swears to his own hurt and does not change. What is God looking for in a man? Well, he's looking for men who are men of non-negotiables in their lives. Men that are not going to be changed and blown along by every wind of doctrine and every wind of lifestyle. They are resolute in the way they behave. They are determined 
in their hearts to love Jesus and follow Jesus, and they will do that even when it hurts, even when it costs, even when there is something involved and they think, oh no. God loves it and is looking for men that even when it hurts and even when it costs are not moved. As I was studying today, I was just reminded on this point of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 9, I think there is one of the most masculine things that you are ever going to come across in your entire Bible. Because Jesus Christ, knowing all that was going to take place for him at the cross, knowing what was going to take place at the Garden of Gethsemane, knowing the anguish that was going to be involved in all that would take place in Jerusalem. In Luke 9, it simply says, And when the days grew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. It was a very deliberate act. Jesus Christ, the God-man, knowing all that waited him there, has now determined in his heart, even though it's going to cost, and he turns and he sets his face on Jerusalem. And for the rest of the gospel, you don't even see him turn back. You don't even see him look back. He's resolute. And he is walking his way to his death. That's manliness. A man who is given over to resolve, a man of non-negotiable, a man that is going to be clear to his resolve even when it costs. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be men of resolve. We're called to be men with non-negotiables, non-negotiables that are based on God's word and that we stick to even when it hurts, even when it costs. Let our yes be yes and our no be no. Even when it costs, I've given you my word so I'm not going to go back on it. It's a man of resolution, a man of clarity, men of non-negotiables. You know, I had, I had a dad like that, which I'm so grateful for. I'm so grateful for my dad. He's actually here in August, and so I'm looking forward to introducing him to you. And one of the things that I love about my dad and most respect about my dad, even as a little guy growing up, he was, just, he was my hero growing up, just because I appreciated his strength. And his result, he was a very gracious man and very humble man and big-hearted and would always be huggy and affectionate, but he was a man of clear resolve. There were non-negotiables with my dad. You could push my dad so far, but you weren't pushing him anymore. It was just enough. That is a non-negotiable sense. So, Dad, so I remember I got better at hockey. I used to play field hockey, and I started to play for the county, and I had England trials, I wasn't good enough to play for England, but they wanted me to step up with the county. It was on a Sunday, so I thought, no dramas, it'll be all right. I'm 14, 15, and my dad said, well, son, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord, so you won't be able to do that. Oh, Dad, give me a break, this is my chance. No, son, no, as for me and my house, we serve the Lord. He was, there was non-negotiable in my father that I grew to appreciate and love. He was a man of, and still is, just a man of very clear resolve. When it comes to church, we never miss church. We weren't having any like shopping trips or, you know, oh, we're just having a little rest because we're a bit under at the moment. What? I, I never faced one of them for 18 years of my life. I don't even know what that is. I don't even, I haven't got a category for those things. Or we're just on a little trip out. What? It's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. Let's get on it. You know, there were non-negotiables. Unless we are literally dying or on holiday, church, we are at church. This is an absolute priority, serving in the church. I grew up in a church plant. So I grew up getting to church at Appa State, and I was a drummer. So I grew up getting it there at Appa State, and then setting my drums back up in the garage at 2 o'clock. That was very normal. 
And I don't remember a time when it wasn't like that. It was, and it wasn't, an, it wasn't a negotiable thing. It was like, well, this is what we do. This is the way we serve Jesus. We're all out for Jesus in the way we go about our lives. My dad gave. He never stopped giving. You know, 10% was an absolute minimum as my dad. I remember the first time I realized that and I said, Dad, how do you work it out? He said, well, son, 10%. And you're like, oh, that's a lot of money. And he said, well, that's just where we start. You give more than that? He said, I try and give a lot more than that. But I was learning about just non-negotiables. Men of resolve that were saying, look, this is how we live our lives. This is what we do. This is how we treat your mum. I remember one time at school, and my brother was being picked on. And uh, I just thought, well, unlucky for him, but I'm playing football. And I got home, and Andrew was sharing with Dad, oh, Dave didn't protect me and all that. And my dad was just went livid. And he just said, son, you're meant to be there for your brother because we're family. My dad was caught on family. You serve one another. You fight together. You weep together. You laugh together. We're family. We're tight. We get on it. My dad is a man of resolve. And I'm so grateful that I therefore got modelled to me what masculinity is. I saw it. And I saw it modelled every day of my life. Some of you may have seen it too. Some of you may not have. One guy that you will have seen it from, though, is a guy called Jonathan Edwards. And there's a handout for you on the way out tonight from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards had many, many different resolutions. And as you examine his life, you realise... This guy's got a lot of resolutions. And what he was doing is he was taking this scripture and saying, Lord, I want to be a man of resolve. I want to be clear in my life what I'm about. And I was reading through a couple of these today. He says, Being sensible that I'm unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And then he starts going through them. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be the most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general, resolve to do this whatever difficulties I meet with, how many and how great soever. Resolved. If ever I shall fall and grow dull, so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions, to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. Resolved, never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but what tends to the glory of God, nor be, nor suffer it, if I can avoid it. Resolved, to live with any might, any and all might, while I do live. Resolved, never to do anything, which I should be afraid to do, if it were the last hour of my life. You love that? He resolved these things. They weren't just, oh, suggestion, I'll have a go. It would be the ideal. He was a man of resolve. This is what I'm going to do with my life. Resolved. I'm never going to invest an hour of my life that I would not be unhappy investing if it was the last hour of my life. It was a decision. A clear masculine decision for the glory of God. What are your non-negotiables? What are your resolutions? What are your absolutes? If you reply with something that you think, well, it is a non-negotiable, but then it's not a non-negotiable. It's a negotiable because there's a but. Now, what are the things that there's never a but? This is what we do. So in my home, the kids know, even if your dad's not a pastor, we go to church, we give, we serve, we give ourselves to life group, we are a family, we stick with this. Why? Because that's what we do. 
That's a resolution, kids. We stand for something before the Lord. What do you stand for? God is looking for a man of resolution. Number five, finally. God is looking for a man of integrity. Verse five. says, Who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. At first, port of call, you think, oh, this is to do with not lending money. And so we should make sure we never lend money to people. But that's not what it's talking about. The Bible doesn't prohibit lending money to people. The issue here is that a, a, that of a man bringing about his own gain at a great cost to the well-being of others. See, in the first part of it, this idea of the guy who does not put out his money at interest, it's a loan shark. It's a dude that is lending money to a group of individuals that can definitely not afford to pay it back. But he's lending him anyway, because then he's going to absolutely kill him when it comes back in. And he knows he's going to do that, but he's doing it deliberately because he wants to gain off the back of their uncomfort and difficulty. We see it then in the second half. It's a guy, a bribe taker, who even against the innocent is taking bribes. Why? So that he can crush them, so that he can stand on their head and do gain out of it. And God's saying, I don't want that. That's not the way for believers. That's not the way masculinity should be used in the kingdom of God. God wants men of very clear integrity. Men who would never put money before people. Men who would never bring about personal gain for themselves. Men who quite literally would do anything in a backhanded or underhanded way that costs others. Whether it be at home, whether it be at work, or whether it be in church. God wants us to be men of integrity. So what is God looking for in a man? He's looking for a man of truth, a man of restraint, a man of passion, a man of resolution, and a man of integrity. And that's what Psalm 15 helps us see. Now I think it is a helpful psalm, but I also think it is slightly overwhelming. I mean, is it just me, or do you come away and you think, oh my goodness, I've got a lot of growing up to do. I've got so many things that I've got, to, I've got to change in. I mean, that's how I come across at the end of this psalm. Even when I'm reading it over the last few days and preparing for tonight, you just think, oh my gosh, I don't, think, I don't know whether I should get out of bed tomorrow because there's just so many things I've just got to change in. I don't even know where to start. I'm just overwhelmed with all the things I'm not and with all the things that I, that I need to be. It can be overwhelming. I think that's when we need to remember Sunday's message. And we need to remember about Divine Changing Room and the principles and points that we were talking about there. You see, before we even attend the Divine Changing Room, for us as men, we need to understand that Jesus Christ was the ultimate godly man for us. The only man that has ever lived like Psalm 15 is Jesus. King David a man after God's own heart, the writer of this psalm, slept with Bathsheba and then got her husband killed. Men fail. Men blow it. Men make mistakes. Men fall. But Jesus never made a mistake. Never fell. Never blew it. The reason that we can sojourn in his tent, the reason that we can dwell in his holy hill, is because as we approach the throne of grace, God sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God sees us approaching the tent as his sons, clothed in the robes and righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And we must understand that. 
We're never going to be able to change until we understand Jesus Christ has paid it all. This is not to do with justification. Jesus Christ has done all that for us. This is to do with sanctification. It's to do with becoming, in actuality, that which we've been declared by the Lord and that which he always sees us as in a justification way. You've got to understand that. Jesus Christ is the man of Psalm 15. It's not you. It's Jesus. But having been saved by his grace and having been called then to live in a manner worthy of the call and to imitate him, these are the things we want to grow in. These are the things that we want to reveal to our culture and our communities of what masculinity is. So what do we do? Well, number one, we seek to change one piece of clothing at a time. Guys, don't go crazy. Don't go home to your wife all excited and say, dear, it's been an amazing night. I've got 54 things I need to change in and I'm pretty sure I'm going to have it licked by the weekend. It's not going to happen. Pick, pick one thing. What's the one thing out of all the different ground that we've covered that you think, you know what? This keeps coming back in my life and I think the Lord's put this on me to change. All right. That's how he tends to operate. So let us take that thing and let us attend the divine changing room. Let's work out with our friends and with our brothers, what is it that we need to put off? What is it that we need to put on? What is the action that God is calling us to change in, in a very literal sense? And then how can I renew my mind while I'm doing it? Lord, help me see. Help me seal the soil of these garments. Help me to see the excitement of putting on this new piece of clothing. Help me see who I am before you. Help me see the gospel in this. Help me see all that you have done for me. See, the truth is sometimes we can be in a rush to change lots of things. But here's here's the thing that I think we don't understand. When we change in one thing, that affects many things. It's just a fact of life. If you ignore everything I've said and you just become a man with non-negotiables, that will change the integrity. That will change the resolution. It will automatically change being a man of the word because you'll find as part of your non-negotiables you want to be men of his word. Likewise, being men of his word and you just say, okay, I can't cope with all the rest but I want to be a man of his word. I'm going to read my Bible more. Yeah, go for it. You know what will happen? You'll grow in wisdom. You'll grow in righteousness. You'll grow in the way you walk. You'll talk differently to your wife. You'll talk differently to your children. Go for it. When we take one thing into the divine changing room and all we do is work on one thing, it does affect the other things. It affects our other clothes. So we patiently and graciously, knowing that God is with us and there to help us, we take one thing into the divine changing room and seek to change. These books will help us. So finishing strong, point man, what's the difference? They will be helpful aids as we just seem to get clarity on what do I need to put off? What do I need to put on? How does that function? How do we do that? What do I need to renew our mind with? So that's what we do. We take one thing into the changing room and when we're in the changing room, here's what we do, brothers. We cry out to God for grace. If our knees aren't knocking at the end of this session, then there's something not quite gone right because mine are. You think, oh my crikeys, what do I do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take one piece of clothing into the changing room. I'm going to share it with my brothers what that is and then as soon as I get in the changing room, I'm going to hit my knees and say, Lord, give me grace because I don't know what I'm doing. And Lord, help me change. Because I've had this piece of clothing on for 35 years. I like it. It's my favourite bit. But you want to change it. So Lord, help me. And when we do that, God answers. 
Hebrews 4 simply says this. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How good is that? We have a saviour to go to that guarantees that as we cry out to him, he will give us grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. So that's what we do. We take one thing into the changing room. We're aware that whether we change in it or not, that does not affect my standing before God because my standing before God is down to Jesus Christ and him alone. So I get in the changing room with one piece of garment as I seek to become like Jesus. And then I cry out, help me. And by God's grace, I trust he will. Let's pray. But Lord, I thank you for the insight that you give us into masculinity. Lord, would we be the men that you've called us to be? Would we be the men that you see us as, clothed in the righteousness of your Son? Lord, give us grace to change. Lord, would we not be sluggards? Would we not be guys that are just messing about and trifling with our lives? But would we be, would we be men that are equipped and armed for war? Men who can lead, men who can care, men who can love, men who can be the husbands that our wives deserve and the fathers that our children deserve. Men that can grow into the husbands and the fathers that they too are called to be. Lord, give us grace for this exercise. We pray in Jesus' name. Help us, Lord. Amen.